Today's text is Revelation 19, 11 to 21. That's on page 1,935 in the Pew Bibles. I'll remind you first how this revelation was introduced in chapter 1. The revelation from Jesus Christ, which God gave him to show his servants what must soon take place. He made it known by sending his angel to his servant John, who testifies to everything he saw, that is, the word of God and the testimony of Jesus Christ. Blessed is the one who reads aloud the words of this prophecy, and blessed are those who hear it, and take to heart what is written in it, because the time is near. I saw heaven standing open, and there before me was a white horse whose rider was called Faithful and True. With justice he judges and wages war. His eyes are like blazing fire, and on his head are many crowns. He has a name written on him that no one else knows but he himself. He is dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. The armies of heaven were following him, riding white horses and dressed in fine linen, white and clean. Coming out of his mouth was a sharp sword with which to take down the nations. He will rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty. On his robe and on his thigh is written this name, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. And I saw an angel standing in the sun who cried out with a loud voice to the birds flying in midair, Come, gather together for the great supper of God, so that you may eat the flesh of the kings, generals, and the mighty, of the horses and their riders, the flesh of all people, free and slave, great and small. Then the beast and the kings of the earth and their armies gathered together to wage war on the rider on the horse and his army. But the beast was captured, and with it the false prophet who had performed many signs on his behalf. With these signs he had deluded many who had received the beast and worshipped its image. The two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur. The rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse. And all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Brothers and sisters in Jesus Christ, in the second Lord of the Rings movie, The Two Towers, the heroes of the story, Aragorn the Ranger, Legolas the Elf, and Gimli the Dwarf, are holed up in the fortress of Helm's Deep in uh, the country of Rohan, with a small group of men and elves to defend it. And outside uh, the walls of the fortress is a vastly superior force of orcs, sort of a half-human, half-goblin hybrid, intent on wiping them out. And the situation is dire. Uh, The heroes are hopelessly outnumbered, outgunned, and have no chance of escape. But the wizard, Gandalf, gives them some hope. For reasons known only to him, he can't stay for the battle. He has other things to attend to. But right before he leaves, he tells them 
Look to my coming on the first light of the fifth day. At dawn, look to the east. In other words, he says to them, just make it to the fifth day. Just hold out against this army until then, because if you can, I'll return and I'll bring salvation with me. And he does. After four days of holding out, fighting, and trying to fend off the orcs, the fifth day dawns, and the heroes, down to their last straw, look to the east. And there, just like he said he would be, is Gandalf. Reinforcements at his back, framed by the light of the dawn. He charges down the hillside with those that he's brought with him. They attack the orcs, and the battle is soon over. In much the same way, Jesus appears ready for battle here in this text too. Just like in the Lord of the Rings movies and so many others, the book of Revelation builds to sort of a final climactic moment. This battle here in chapters 19 and 20 is what the rest of this book has been building towards. St. John has been preparing us as his readers for it, creating expectation and excitement and raising our sense of anticipation for this moment. It's here, like Gandalf's arrival on the fifth day, that heaven opens. A white horse rides down and our Savior, Jesus Christ, arrives at just the pivotal moment to win the last battle of heaven and earth. It's exciting, only that battle never actually happens. Truth be told, this whole scene here uh, in Revelation 19 is kind of anticlimactic. Um, it certainly starts out well enough. Um, heaven splits open. Jesus comes riding down on a war horse. His eyes are ablaze. He's crowned with victory and splattered with blood. There's an army of Christian saints at his back and a sword sticking out of his mouth, ready to do battle and strike down the nations. Then the camera cuts, and John sees an angel standing in the sun, crying out to the birds in the air, Come, gather together. There's about to be a battle and a whole bunch of bodies for you to feast on. The camera cuts again, and now we see the beast of chapters 13 and 17, accompanied by the kings of the earth. Their armies are arrayed behind them, gathered together to make war against the rider and his army. And with that, the stage is set. The curtain is drawn, and the lights come up. Like any storyteller building to the final showdown, John has set this scene perfectly. As readers, he's got us right where he wants us, primed and ready to see Christ's final victory unfold moment by moment, detail by detail, in all of its wondrous glory. And then, just like that, he skips it. We don't get to see this battle that we've been building toward. We don't get to see Jesus' final victory. John doesn't actually describe it. Instead, all we see is sort of the, the end, the, the untangling, the falling action after it's all said and done. After all of this description of Christ and his army, and then the beast and the kings of the earth and their army, John simply writes, but the beast was captured. And with it, the false prophet who had performed signs on its behalf, the two of them were thrown alive into the fiery lake of burning sulfur, the rest were killed with the sword coming out of the mouth of the rider on the horse, and all the birds gorged themselves on their flesh. And that's it. And just like that, it's over. It's done. 
There's no more to say or write because John cuts it short and simply jumps to the end. The battle is finished. The beast and the false prophet are thrown into the lake of sulfur never to return. And the armies opposed to God are killed and swept away. It'd be like if when Gandalf finally showed up there in the two towers, all of a sudden the screen cut to black. Some text came up that said five minutes later and then the next scene was simply the heroes celebrating their victory. And yet, that's more or less what John does here. That's how he chooses to show the last great battle that this whole book of Revelation, really all of Scripture as a whole, has been building toward. He doesn't show it. That's the last word on salvation. An underwhelming, anticlimactic non-description of a battle that wasn't. It's almost like John got tired of writing and simply decided to call it a day. Except I don't think that's what really what's going on here. At first glance, this might seem to be the case, but peel the layers back, take a closer look at this text, and I think we get a very different picture from St. John. Because instead of simply cutting things short, I think that he's trying to send us a message. He's trying to send a message to us, his readers. A message about Jesus, about his victory, and about what it means for us. And those are the three things that we're going to look at this morning. Jesus, his victory, and then what it means for us today. Turns out the last word on salvation isn't an oversight on John's part. Instead, it's actually an overview of the themes that he feels are most important in the gospel message for us to understand as his readers. And like any good Christian, the first thing that he wants us to see is our Savior, Jesus Christ. St. John is in the Spirit again here in Revelation 19, and he sees a vision of Jesus. The heavens split open and are rent apart, a la Isaiah 64. There's a horse and his rider there before John, and the rider's name is Faithful and True. He's a just judge and a warrior. His eyes are aflame, his head is crowned with many crowns, he has a name written on him, but no one knows what it is. He's dressed in a robe, dipped in blood, and his name is the Word of God. There's an army behind him, mounted on white horses and wearing fine, clean linen. Out of his mouth comes a sharp sword to strike down the nations and rule them with an iron scepter. He treads the winepress of the fury of the wrath of God Almighty, and on his robe and on his thigh he has this name written, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. John is actually rehashing imagery here from earlier in the book of Revelation. Even just listening to it, you might have caught some of that. For instance, in chapter 1, verse 5, Jesus is called the faithful witness, the firstborn from the dead, and the ruler of the kings of the earth. And then just a little later in that same chapter, John describes Jesus as one like a son of man, dressed in a robe, reaching down to his feet with a golden sash around his chest. The hair on his head was white like wool, as white as snow, and his eyes were like blazing fire. And coming out of his mouth was a sharp, double-edged sword. So we've seen this imagery here that John uses for Jesus in Revelation 19 before. Jesus is the faithful witness. He's the ruler of all the kings of the earth. He's dressed in the ceremonial robe of a priest. 
His eyes are aflame, which symbolizes his ability to see into everything and everyone with, other, with utter clarity. And then finally, the weapon that he wields is actually the sword of his mouth, his word. Place them side by side, and these different descriptions that we get of Jesus in Revelation 1 and, and 19 parallel each other almost perfectly. John is nothing if not consistent in his writing. He wants us to remember that the Jesus who comes at the end of all things is the same Jesus who was there at the beginning of all things. The same one who is both witness and king of all. The same one who both died and rose for his church. And yet despite the similarities, there are a few key differences in John's description of Jesus here in chapter 19. And that brings us to the second thing John wants us to see. He wants us to see Jesus, yes, but he also wants us to see the nature of his victory. Because truth be told, it might not be what we expect. The first hint that we get of that is actually Jesus' robe. Of all things, it's Jesus' clothing, his attire, that gives us a sense of what kind of savior he is and what kind of victory he has won. You see, throughout the book of Revelation, the different clothes that are mentioned are ceremonial clothes. What I mean by that is that they're the kind of clothes the Old Testament priests would wear in the temple of Jerusalem as they went about their ministry. You can read more about it in Exodus 28, but the clothing that the priests were supposed to wear was a very specific uh, set of clothes. And the robe that Jesus is wearing here in Revelation 19, as well as chapter 1, is part of that priestly garb. Likewise, the fine linen garments, white and clean, that John sees the saints of the church wearing throughout the book are also part of that priestly attire. And these clothes, both the robe and the linen garments, were meant to symbolize something in the Old Testament. They symbolized purity, righteousness, and holiness. They were meant to be an outward sign of the sort of inward rightness with God that the priests were supposed to demonstrate on behalf of all the rest of the people of Israel. In their work at the temple, the priests were meant to serve as sort of a living example of God's relationship with his people. And as such, their clothes were supposed to be spotless, symbolizing the people's repentant spotlessness before God. The problem, though, was that it was hard for the priests in the Old Testament to keep their clothes that way. I'll suffice it to say that working in the temple was messy business, especially the sacrifices. You can't spend all day preparing animals for an altar and not get some blood on your hands, including on your clothes. By the end of the day, the Old Testament priests probably look less like priests and more like your local butcher. But even that, even that was holy. Because even though their clothes weren't spotless anymore, the mess that the priests would end up wearing at the end of each day was the blood of the sacrifices that made both them and the rest of the people holy before God. And that is the kind of robe that Jesus shows up in here in Revelation 19. The battle hasn't even begun yet, and yet Christ is already covered in blood. Why? Because it's not the blood of this battle. It's not the blood of his enemies. It's his own. It's the blood of sacrifice 
It's the blood that has made you and me and all others who put our faith in Jesus Christ right with God. No more animals, no more altars, no more temples, just the blood-stained Savior who has already done and already accomplished what we need so that we can be clothed clean, white, and spotless as the army at his back. Notice that verse 14 says that we, the saints of the church, are lined up behind Christ and we are spotless in fine linen, clean and white, precisely because he himself is not. It's his blood that has washed us clean. And that is actually why John doesn't really even show the battle here. This is why this passage seems so anticlimactic. This is why John skips straight from the build-up to this battle right to the end. Because the battle has actually already happened. The sacrifice has already been made. The victory has already been won. It was concluded 2,000 years ago on a small hill outside of Jerusalem called Golgotha. Jesus' blood-stained robe tells us all that we need to know about the outcome of this battle before Satan and his forces even line up. Salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Indeed, it does. And that salvation is already complete. But something else that we need to notice is that that salvation is also completely Christ's. Jesus has an army at his back, and the text actually makes clear that that army is us. Throughout the book of Revelation, whenever we see people wearing fine linen, clean white robes, it's the saints of the church. Us, God's people, we are actually the rank and file here. We're the heavenly warriors on white horses. We're the ones backing Jesus up in this final showdown. And yet we don't do anything. Only Christ does. The sword of his word comes out of his mouth. His enemies fall before him. And that's it. It's over. It's done. And we don't even get a chance to stain our robes the way that Christ's is stained. The victory, the glory, and the salvation are entirely and only his. The credit is Christ's and Christ's alone. And we are merely bystanders who graciously receive it as a gift. And that brings us to the third thing that John wants us to see in this text, which is what this all means for us. John has showed us Jesus in this vision. He showed us the nature of his victory. Now he wants us to see its significance. And the first thing he wants us to understand is that our salvation is not something that we earn. This is the heart of the gospel, isn't it? After all, what do we believe as Christians? That only Christ can save, right? And that is exactly what we see displayed so clearly in this text. Christ alone wins this battle. It's his blood that seals our salvation. It's his word that conquers all. Our salvation, our forgiveness, our redemption, it's only because of him. There's nothing we can do to achieve, accomplish, or earn our salvation. It's only Christ. And that's what we see so clearly demonstrated in this text. Our salvation is his alone. And my friends, there is comfort in that. 
There is immense comfort in that. Because what that means is that no matter what happens, no matter who we are or what we've done, and no matter anything that the future might hold either, our salvation is secure in Christ. Nothing can change that. And that's especially comforting when we think about the future. You see, try as some people might to to turn this book of Revelation into sort of a step-by-step prediction guide for the end of time. We don't really know what that's going to be like. We don't really know what's all going to happen or what we'll experience when Christ comes back. There's uncertainty there, mystery, sense of the unknown. All scripture really says, and it says this repeatedly, is be ready. And that's not much to go on. And so it can be a bit unnerving for us. And yet the fact is that as Christ's people washed and waiting for him, holy and spotless in his blood, we have nothing to ultimately fear. There is no suffering that can compare with his grace, no tribulation that can snatch us from his hand, no last gasps of Satan that can undo the salvation that Christ has firmly made possible for us. The security that we have in Jesus Christ is simply unshakable. And we can rest in that. But that doesn't mean that the end will necessarily be easy for us. Remember, Jesus wields a sword in this chapter. It's the sword of his word, the sword of truth. And it is a sword It's sharp and double-edged and it cuts both ways, both declaring who we are in Christ, that we are his people, we are on his side, but also carving the sin and untruth that runs contrary to his kingdom out of his world. And yes, that includes when that sin and untruth is found in us. A pastor and thinker I respect quite a bit says of this passage, in the end we are probably right in our dread of Armageddon, but not because of the bloody battle that we think it will be, rather because it will expose the convenient lies we have so willingly believed. Some guy named Peter said that. But it's true, isn't it? As fallible human beings, we believe so many lies that run contrary to the truth of Christ. Lies like, it's my way or the highway. Or, only look out for number one. And, he who dies with the most toys wins. We believed other lies too, like the idea that our truth is the only truth that matters. And therefore, we get to determine our identity, our reality, even our morality. We believe the lie that success, influence, and the idolatrous goal of comfort are the most important things in life. We've been duped into thinking that power, coercion, and manipulation are the keys to winning and then retaining that power. And we've come to think that the greatest and highest form of self-expression is sexual, that the American dream is, of course, the same as God's kingdom dream, and that for some reason God needs us to reclaim his world for him by force. These and a whole host of other half-truths, fantasies, and fallacies as well. Satan has certainly done his job on us. But when Christ comes, he'll cut it all away. This sword of his word will separate what's sinful from what is savable, the redeemable from the discardable, and the true from the false. 
Christ will do a surgery of sorts on his creation, and we will be no exception, even as his people. We cannot ultimately be lost from his hand, but that doesn't mean that we, even we, don't need a bit of open heart to restore us to the kind of people that God has intended us to be. Christ comes with a sword, and like a surgeon with a scalpel, he's going to use it to make his creation healthy and alive again. And yet, and yet, this is still the good news. It's still the hope that we have as Christians, and it's still the gospel that we believe in. Christ comes here in Revelation 19 to secure his victory. He comes to restore and renew this creation, as we'll see next week. He comes in glory, crowned with many crowns and astride a white horse. He comes to bring salvation once and for all. Like Gandalf, we look to his coming on the first light at dawn, though this time not on the fifth day, but the third. Jesus indeed did come. The fulfillment of all of our Advent waiting, he lived among us, our Emmanuel, God with us. Then he suffered, was crucified, and died on our behalf. He came to take our sins and to work redemption and forgiveness for us as our great high priest, one that we could never earn. Three days later, at that first light of dawn, he brought our salvation with him as he stepped forth from the grave. And it's that same salvation that he will come one day to complete and bring to fulfillment. It's that coming that we now wait for and anticipate as his people today. One day, we will see it. Heaven will stand open. There'll be a white horse, and we'll know the rider because it will be our Savior and our King coming to speak his last word of salvation both for us and for his world. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you pray with me? Lord God, with a word, you spoke this creation into being. Light, darkness, water, land, sea, plants, animals, and us as your people. Because of our sin, that world has been distorted and ruined. And yet, by the power of your word, you have saved us and your creation. You are restoring us through your Holy Spirit. And one day, you will come again to make that restoration complete. Come, Lord Jesus. We look forward to that day. And we pray this in your name. Amen.